Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Dan Lee. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Dan as a person. Professor Lee is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar. And finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Lee is the Leslie Waters Chair in International Business and the Chairperson of Management and Entrepreneurship Department in Indiana University. Her research interests include management of multinational enterprises, international strategic alliances, and the internationalization process. Her research was published in JEPS, SMJ, Global Strategy Journal, Journal of Business Ethics, Journal of World Business, Journal of International Management, Management International Review, and JBV, among others. Dan received the Sovain Teaching Award in 2016, the Exceptional Inspiration and Guidance Award in 2015, the Research Award from the Institute for Advanced Study in 2014. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for that very nice introduction. And and thank you for doing this conversation uh, series. It has been really interesting to me personally uh, to be able to hear, um, you know, a lot of interesting stories about personal uh, journeys by so many scholars and their professional insights. So it's it's really it's really interesting. Perfect. Thank you so much. And uh, let's start with yours, uh, your story. Uh, What did you want to become when you were a child? (laughs) Um, I I think at very young age, I I knew two things that I I would like to have, but I did not know exactly what kind of profession or job I would like to do. One is I would like to do something about books, (laughs) you know, at a very young age. Books represent knowledge. Um, I I will share my story uh, about this part. So I want to do something, I I would like to do something with books. Uh, I would like to be financially independent. So these two were very clear at very young age to me. Um, So about the books, at one time actually, I wanted to be a dictionary. (laughs) <laughs> it's not a job, but, but you know, in my uh, tiny work, um, dictionary at that time, uh, that's the book with the most information, with the most knowledge, that's the most useful tool, <laughs> I think for everybody. Um, so I, I, I was born in the mid-70s mid uh, in China, in a small city. Um, you know this at that time China was a pretty poor country. Um, that small city I was born in, that's a poor city. <laughs> it's a city. Um, so I really did not have much access to books. I, I love books. I love books, but I, I did not have access to. So the first uh, professional idea that I had was about teachers, because at the beginning of each semester, teachers would distribute textbooks. And, you know, those were the people in charge of knowledge, <laughs> in charge of books. Mysteriously, they got books from somewhere. Uh, so that, that's, that's one rough idea about books. There's another very interesting thing, which is um, a book room on my way to school. So I, I passed that book room. It's, it's in the corner of a you know, turning up the street, if you see in that corner, there's a small building. 
uh, not a small building, actually just a, a small house there. Uh, it says book room. It's not library. It does not say library. It says book room. Um, so I love books. I do not have many books. And there's that book room in the corner on my way to school, uh, from school back home. So it's like a kid passing a treasure box <laughs> every day. But it's always locked. Um, so, you know, that temptation, you know, there, there's a book room. I have no idea what's in there. And I, I was passing that every day for a while. So finally, I, you know, I tried to peek in, but I could not see anything. It was dark. I do not know how my, my, my father got connected with the person having that key to that book room. <laughs> You know, talking about child relationships. So he somehow he 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 made that connection. So I was able to got into that room. It's really like a treasure box. Not many books at all. It's it's a small room, and uh, not bigger than a large closet, I would say. But for me, it was <laughs> so I wanted to be that 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 young man who had, had the key to that room. <laughs> it's almost like you know someone with light in their in their hand. Uh, right. So I, so I, at that time I was thinking about books, but actually I, I think what later on, you know, growing up, I think I had that very, uh, at very young age, I had that interesting knowledge, you know, accessing knowledge, um, you know, sharing knowledge with people. Um, so I really did not know what I wanted to be other than doing that. Um, of course, you know, I, at that time, in my mind, there was no such term as encyclopedia. Otherwise, I would have wanted to be an encyclopedia, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I also want to know, I want to financially independent uh, because of the, you know, women around me, uh, they're suffering um, the difficult situations they're in because they're not, they were not financially independent. So these are the two things that I, at very young age, um, very clear in my mind you know, knowledge, something about knowledge, and independent. Very interesting. Uh, <laughs> I remember the first day I, I've seen a thesaurus. Yeah. <laughs> that was a surprise to me. I, I didn't realize that words had so many uh, synonyms, and uh, yeah. that was a shocking uh, revelation. Yes. Uh, about the first earliest moment of awareness between domestic versus foreign, uh, how did you realize that there was a world out there um it's it's not um it's not like you know one moment i, I realized uh, oh you know this is this foreign it's a very i would say it's a very gradual process um china has been a very homogeneous country even you know, even with the economic reform with so much you know foreign direct investment investment in china even a few years ago when i took um, you know, our MBA students to China, to, to Beijing, you know, that's a very large city, you know, very internationalized city, according to Chinese standards. And, and one, one MBA student shared with me again, saying, you know, it's, it's so homogeneous, people all look alike. There are, there are foreigners, non-Chinese, but not that many. So China has always been a homogeneous country despite you know, different ethnicities uh, in China. So when I was growing up in that small city, um, everyone looked like me, <laughs> pretty much. 
uh, even in that small book room, you know, I was able to access some books. Um, I mean, my school did not have a library. Um, I did not even know whether this, I, I, whether the city had one at that time. So even in that book room with many books, you know, in my little mind at that time, very few books authored by non-Chinese and very few books with content about, you know, the rest of the world other than China, you know, the history of China. Um, so it's, it, and if there were anything about foreign countries, very often it's about the war, uh, it's about invasion. So foreigners were bad guys. <laughs> I did not want to have anything to do with, with that. But there were two experiences, I would say, um, kind of gave me, opened my eyes, opened my mind. Uh, one is a personal, I mean, both are personal, but one is a, um, um, about an uncle. Um, you know, very, at a very young age, I heard adults, you know, my parents, my neighbors talking about this, this uncle, my brothers, my, my father's older brother, talking about this uncle and his wife uh, working in foreign countries. Um, you know, I really did not think much about that. And I, I, I knew they work in foreign countries. I knew they cannot go home, cannot see their children uh, for three years in a row. You know, three years they would come back for a couple of months and then they would leave. Now that's nothing fun about that idea. I thought that's terrible. Um, but there was one year um, they sent back cookies uh, and candies. Um, I had all my life, I had never tasted anything like that. Uh, it was delicious. Um, so I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, there's something really cool, really nice, you know, for, for, for a kid at that time, you know, when I Later on, I, I learned that actually they work in embassy, in Chinese embassy in different countries. And the cookies and, and candies they sent back, that's from Japan. <laughs> but it was, it was uh, you know, kind of blowing my mind the taste that, that I could have. The other experience, very positive experience, and I think that experience probably influenced the whole generation in China. It's a TV show. Uh, it's called the Zhengda Variety Show. Uh, the co-host, uh, Lan Yang, she's probably at least one of the most famous um, women from China um, in the whole world right now. I think she's, she's named uh, one of the, you know, 100, world's 100 most powerful women uh, probably 10 years ago or seven, eight years ago. Uh, she's one of the co-hosts for that show. Basically, you know, that's a show broadcasted uh, during the weekend. Uh, it's not very long. I think it's a half an hour plus something else or 45 minutes, something like that. So it takes you to different parts of the world and showing you, um, the, you know, the, the natural scenery, the history of that place, uh, what, people, what people look like, uh, what they do and what they eat, you know, back to the cooking and <laughs> uh, delicious food. Uh, the slogan of that show is, uh, uh, the word surprises me. Uh, the word is wonderful. Um, so I, I, I also think that's the first TV show with foreign investment. You know, Chinese media, very tightly controlled. 
uh, even today, <laughs> very tightly controlled. I think that's the first TV show with foreign investment involved. Um, but you know, through that show, I was able to see what the rest of the world looks like. Uh, and I was hooked. <laughs> it's just so fascinating to me. And I wanted to know more. I want to experience more. So that I guess you know that show. I was in high school uh, at that time. It, I think it was started in 1990. Um, yeah. So that's that's the time when I so when I went to college, when I had the opportunity, uh, I chose to do international um, economics. Actually, <laughs> there was no international business or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So that's I guess that's a very gradual process for me to you know to open my eyes. Then yeah. uh, uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Um, I, I would say uh, my, my life is, <laughs> I have a great life, let me say that. Uh, but my life is also kind of a, a, a simple life, I would, I would say. Something that people do not know about me. I mean, you can see the pictures of my children. So. That's, that's something not on my CV. Um, I like trying different recipes. Um, just, just try something new. And, and I do not cook every day. You know, thanks to my husband, I do not have to. <laughs> I can do it, but, but I, I hope I do not have to do that every day. Um, but I try different recipes. I, I guess it's just that the, there's some creativity in there there's immediate uh, reward you know, after you're done. You know, sometimes good reward, sometimes not very good. <laughs> um, it's very different from what we do. Um, you know, it takes years, you know, two, three, even longer years uh, for us to publish, to complete and to publish one article. So it you know, takes a long time. I think there's always some kind of uh, counterbalance. Um, so for me, Doing that is therapeutical, <laughs> probably, uh, but I enjoy that. Perfect. Uh, regrets. Uh, what is one thing you wish you would have done or done differently? Um, regrets. Regrets. I, of course, I made many mistakes in life. <laughs> I guess everyone does. Um, but one thing that I often think of, but I will, I, I don't think I will ever, ever. Uh, correct uh, or address is um, vision correction surgery. I always wanted to do that, but I never got the gut to do it. Uh, and I think that would be something continuing into my future, something I, I wish I had done, but I did not do. <laughs> Hopefully technology will solve that problem. Other than you know, not using surgery, some kind of eye drop. <laughs> <laughs> and miracles. Okay. Um... Uh, biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Um, biggest failures. Um, you, you know, I, I think I've been very lucky. Uh, things that I set my eyes on, um, you know, often I was able to, to do that, to accomplish that. So I, I think I'm, I've been really, really lucky with a lot of, a lot of people helping me and supporting me and guiding me. Um, I think I can share one failure. It's not a very big failure, but, you know, in my life. But at the same time, 
I did learn something that 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 helped me for years, many many years. It's uh you know back to my childhood. Um, there was you know the the city was poor, the whole country was poor. Children at that time really did not have many extra curriculum activities. Um, you know, kids run around after school and you know playing with mud and, and poking dead animals. You know, birds and bees. <laughs> Don't poke a dead bee; it can still sting. That's a lesson learned in a hard way. Uh, so I, I did not have many things um, either. Um, when I was probably six or seven years old, we moved into an apartment um, in a really tiny one. There was not much decoration. It's, it's the same for everyone, for everyone. Um, so a one friend, a friend of my, of my parents, uh, painted something on the wall, painted a peony in the, the very beautiful uh, flower. I think it's probably the national flower in China now. Um, it was just amazing to see someone painting the whole wall, you know, so beautifully. And for years, you know, my neighbors would come and admire that painting. I, I, at that point, I thought that's, that's amazing, that's wonderful, and I wanted to learn. So, there was no formal lesson or anything, you know, he just gave me something, my, my a friend, my parents' friend, he just gave me something for me to, you know, just to imitate, I, and I did not. There was, he said I had, had, I had talent. I don't, I do not know, it's probably just me nice, uh, being encouraging, telling me that. But there was one time he gave me something for me to draw. It was a bit more difficult than what he typically gave me. And, and I know I did not do a good job. And I, I guess I was just afraid of disappointing him. Um, I was a little bit ashamed that I was not able to do that, given that he said I had talent. Um, so I told, my I told my father that I did not want to learn anymore. I, I, of course, I was still interested, but I just said, I, I don't want to learn. So just like that, it, it ended. Um, so it's, it's nothing. You know, you know, later on, my interest shifted to something else. It's not a big deal. But I learned, and I always remember that one, that, it's, you know, everybody knows this, you know, you are your worst. You yourself is your worst enemy. If you self-impose, if you put that boundary on yourself, you're, you're there. You're constrained. Um, so I learned that at, at, at very luckily, um, not with much cost, um, that this is this is very important. Yeah. Interesting. Let's switch gears. Uh, thank you so much. Um, say you're stranded in a uh, neighborhood pub, small village, uh, and people are curious about you. How do you explain your research and the importance of your research to people who don't read Jibs or SMJ, AMJ <laughs> <laughs> regularly? Yeah. Uh, talking about that, actually, I I, I did. Um, have opportunities doing things like that. Uh, you know, even just going back to my hometown to visit, you know, my grandparents, you know, they all passed away now. But when I went back to the villages, uh, people asked me what I, what I do. You know, it seems like you're doing well, but <laughs> exactly, you know, what, what, what do you do? Um, typically, you know, I start with teaching. I start with the classes that I teach, you know, international business courses. Um, that's probably easier for people to connect with. 
Um, so that's, that's where I would start. And moving on to research, um, typically I stay um, you know, at very general conversation about what I, what I research, what I study. I would, uh, I would share that you know, I help people understand uh, multinational farms. I know some of the relatives do not even know what I'm talking about, <laughs> multinational farms. Uh, but I would say, you know, countries have different rules, different regulations, uh, different social norms. I would not use the terminology that like institutional, formal, informal institutions or institu institutional configuration or anything like that. I would say, you know, farms take advantage of that, um, you know, uh, for, for a variety of reasons, for good reasons and bad reasons. For good reasons, like, you know, you have a bigger market, you can sell more, you can make more profits, you can employ more people. Um, but also for reasons like, well, I can go to this place to squeeze more profit out, out of the, the very old technology, but it will pollute the environment. So that's what I do. I have people understand uh, why multinational farms, why farms do, uh, why they go to other countries and do businesses and uh, you know, how they do that. Um, you know, there's different regulations, different norms. They need to navigate uh, all of that. And what are the consequences, you know, the financial consequences, the, uh, the political consequences, the social consequences, the human consequences. So that's, that's what I study. And people are interested in this, and, you know, talking about people in the villages. Of course, I know you're using that as a metaphor, <laughs> talking to the public. Because, you know, China, I, I think I was very fortunate. Um, although, you know, I was born in a, in a poor country um, growing up there, there was not much suffering. Uh, but I was able to experience that, that very dramatic transformation um, of Chinese um, economy. I was able to experience the power of foreign direct investment, the power of private business. At the same time, experiencing a lot of uh, confusion, inequality brought up by the very rapid economic development. So I think people are very interested in knowing why this is happening, who are doing this, why they're doing this, uh, how they do this. So that's, that's something I, you know, for me, at least for uh, the, the relatives in those villages, I was able to make that, to make that, that connection. Um, and at the same time, I think it's, um, um, it's, really, it's really fun. I ask what they do. They, they tell me, you know, they went to a, a factory in a city, you know, just as a migrant worker. And I would ask about their, their, you know, what they produce and I can tell them where the product went, uh, you know, things like that. It's, um, it, it's really fun. It, it's really fun actually to talk about that. Perfect. <clears throat> about the omitted variables or uh, less visited or neglected areas of research in IB. Great question. Um, and uh, that reminded me of something that Lauren and I talked about, um, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think research, it takes a lot of time uh, for research to evolve for any field, not just you know, our, our research area, for research to evolve. And we scholars uh, study what we can make sense of, what we can observe, what we can capture, 
Um, and of course, you know, the low hanging fruits, you know, that's what we study uh, first. So I do not think it's, it's intentional or anything that there are areas that we have not paid um, sufficient attention to. So I mentioned, you know, Laurie and I had this conversation uh, when I was a doctor student um, and she shared many, many insights with me. And one thing, and I think it, that's still relevant today, that's an element that we do not observe directly and we have not had, um, I mean, we have had research of course, but not probably not enough, we could have done more. That's the human element. Uh, I think in your, in your GIPS paper, you know, the, the one from last year, the neglected um, elements in IB research, I think that's that you also talked about um, the human element. I'm not simply uh, talking about individual decision makers or decision making at the individual level. Um, two things, I, I, I guess. One is indeed how we make decisions because you know multinational farms make decisions. Those are people, executives, mid-level managers. You know these are people making decisions, and at the same time. We human bear the consequences, um, so I, I think that's the human element here. So in terms of the decision making, you know, the subjectivity of decision making, right? Um, the cognitive aspect of decision making, uh, the dynamics of human interaction in decision making, you know, that that goes into the governance of multinational farms. So that's the de decision making process, the human uh, role uh, in that decision making. You know, for example, one, one, one project that my fathers and I are working on right now, uh, we're looking at immigrant uh, CEOs. Um, you know, when they look at their home country, when they make decisions, <laughs> whether the company, the, their, their firms would do something irresponsible in those locations, do they have that emotional bonding with, uh, with their motherland? Uh, not, to, not to do that, not to do harm. Um, you know, the location of uh, corporate social aid responsibility decisions. Uh, at the same time, the consequences of decision-making, right? Um, you know, what we do, um, what, what companies do, what are the consequences, the sustainability considerations, human rights commitment. It's not just, you know, the financial part, you know, the, the human cost that, that we bear. Uh, we are seeing more and more research on these topics. And, um, you know, we very likely will, will see more. And I think that's, that's great, you know, as a, as, as a field, you know, we're paying more attention to this part of our research, of business activities. Dan, what, what do you see as the next, uh, yes, human, obviously, uh, the human side is clearly important, but, um, about the next five to 10 years of the field to give some research direction to junior faculty or PhD students uh, in, in, in IB. Uh, what are some of the key areas that you would identify to study further? Uh, yeah, I, I would, of course, you know, just, hey, we all have our own lens of looking at, um, looking at the world, looking at businesses, looking at multinational firms activities. Um, so for me, well, I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> I do not actually. I think it's 
to some degree, I feel like it, it's fun that we do not have that crystal ball. You know, it's it's an adventure. It's it's an exploration. So, but but anyhow, it's, it's kind of on the side. Um, two, I mean, um, two categories. I would say I will not. It's it's not like two areas or anything. Um, one is the phenomenon that we're experiencing now. Um, technology, for example. Uh, you know, we've heard so much about machine learning, about AI, about big data. Uh, you know, how technology innovation um, transformed some businesses. Um, so I, I think that's something that we, we, have, we, we have begun, you know, paying attention to. In international business research, we have always evolved with business activities. So that's something we will see more. Um, at the same time, the political and social uh, environment we're in today, uh, we have seen an increasing number of publications on globalization versus deglobalization, uh, the human um, expenses. Um, in the global globalization process. Uh, you know, sustainability, of course, that's the part we just talked about, the grant challenges issues. So all of this, I think we are evolving along with businesses. So we, we will see more research in, uh, on these topics. Uh, the other category I would say actually is research specific. Uh, Interdisciplinary research is just hard to do. It is definitely very beneficial. But at the same time, uh, reviewers, um, I, I think overall, you know, when, we, when, when a research field has uh, a more clear boundary that also creates some issues because we start to talk to each other more, we start to speak the same language, same language more, we probably are not as open to other fields uh, as what we used to be, um, but but I do see with the information on the tips of our of our fingers, we are able to access uh, a wide variety of theoretical frameworks, theoretical perspectives from other disciplines. So we're going to see more um, interdisciplinary research, and that's very ben beneficial for our field. We have always benefited. Hopefully, we can <laughs> you know share our our theories with our fields with other fields more. Another part related to our own research, I think, is again, technology. Um, technology enabled uh, methodologies or data collection methods. Uh, we, there are areas, there are topics that we, uh, I think we have always been interested in, but we simply do not have the, the tools to capture that. You know, for example, how do we capture um, your, thought, your thought segments, you know, when you make a decision? Uh, you know, like the you know, the one uh, juice paper that I did with one, with my former doctor student. Um, you know, we did the, that quadrix survey to ask people, you know, to record their thinking process when they make decision when they make decisions about country selection, right? Country selection, right? How how, how novel is that topic? <laughs> I guess you know, even with uh, research topics, research research, research themes that we, we have learned a lot with the new tools that we have, with the new data 
that we have, uh, I think we probably will be able to, to shine light on, on more, um, uh, just, just you know, get more insights. I, I remember, you know, Lauren shared something with me um, before. It's like, you know, shine your light. Um, if you do not have the data, you really cannot do much. Um, I mean, I think that's true with many topics in our field. Um, you know, the most, everyone knows about this one, the culture, national culture with Hofstede's quantification and numbers with different dimensions of, of culture. We saw that explosion of cultures research, right? So I think with, now with the technology we have, we probably will be able to see you know, that kind of uh, blossom of research in our field. It reminded me of uh, when you were discussing the, how do you capture the feelings towards uh, country selection or mm -hmm. uh, immigrants' reaction. Uh, Colin Kammerer was doing uh, some research at Caltech, uh, and he had a huge lab with electrodes. How <laughs> uh, we don't have that, uh, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah. It will be interesting. And actually, it's quite because people are giving an emotion. And this is an emotional thing. It's not only rational decisions uh, all the time. Yeah, uh, you know, I had that uh, I had that kind of crazy idea if executives would allow us to put a helmet on their <laughs> <laughs> uh, We do try with uh, undergrads, but it's not the same effect. Yeah. Uh, uh, for the sake of time, about the advice portion of the interview, uh, what was the best advice you received from your advisor? Or from, uh, you mentioned Lorraine a couple of times or uh, from Lorraine Eden. Uh, what was the best advice you received from uh, your advisor when you were um, going to the program? Yeah, I, my, my academic parents, <laughs> I would say, um, you know, for my dissertation, I had uh, co-chairs, uh, Lorraine uh, for my international business uh, part and uh, Michael Gitt for my strategic management. Of course, you know, Mike also an IB scholar, IB international strategy scholar. So I always say, you know, for my identity, international strategy, I have these two legs, international business and strategic management. And I, I was really, really lucky having wonderful uh, mentors. Uh, you know, Laurie and Mike, they, they have offered me so many advices. It's hard for me to say, um, you know, which one or two <laughs> other, most, um, and, and also, you know, many other um, colleagues and mentors, you know, provided, and I learned so much. I think our profession, that's, that's a very beautiful aspect of our profession. Um, but to answer your question, um, I think a, a few things coming to my mind. One is, of course, to aim high, uh, do quality work, no matter what you do, um, do it well. I think that's very, uh, very important. Um, the other advice that I received um, is uh, to be open-minded uh, and be respectful. I mean, I'm not simply talking about, you know, talking to your advisor, you be open-minded. Um, also, you know, with your colleagues, with, with reviewers, um, you know, you also do some editorial work as editor, you know, be open-minded our own research and also when we evaluate, evaluate other people's uh, work. You know, be very open-minded, um, be respectful. And um, the, the, the third one that I want to share, uh, it's very simple, but I think very, very important to complete your work. Um, <laughs> I think that starts with, you know, term paper the student has, but there's a deadline with dissertation work. Uh, that's, that's important. 
I think when a pre-tenure, um, there's, you know, hopefully, you know, not many distractions, but particularly post-tenure, there are just so many responsibilities, other responsibilities for us to take. You know, we need to do that. Uh, it's very important to remind us to complete the work. Complete the work, not only our own work, uh, also complete work, for example, when, when we work with doctoral students, when we work with junior colleagues. They have very tight timeline, career-wise. Uh, there's always a clock ticking. So complete the work. I, I always keep that in mind. And, and I don't mind people imposing deadline on me. <laughs> um, you know, just, just to be efficient. I mean, uh, Kate Eisenhardt actually mentioned the same thing uh, about completing the work. Actually, it's, it's probably important. You know, the self-imposed yeah. deadlines and uh, tying the loose ends, obviously. Uh, when, when you look at junior faculty and PhD uh, students, what are some of the mistakes that you see that is common across uh, our, our new colleagues uh, that you think... Uh, things that they should not do? Um, no, one is, as we just talked, not, complete. yeah. not okay. completing their work, but there are reasons uh, why they're not completing their work. Uh, I think there are two reasons. One is they're reading and thinking too much, you know, always looking for that perfect, um, perfect paper to, to submit. There's no perfect paper. I mean, even if we have a perfect paper at this exact moment, three months later, three years later, when we look back, I mean, the, the field has always been evolving. Our knowledge has always been evolving. So there's no perfect, there's no way that you would have that, you know, here's a perfect paper I have ever published. It's not possible. So I think reading too much, not being able to really get down and get that done, uh, that's, that's a problem or reading too little is a problem. That's, I think that also causes uh, someone not being able to complete the work because reading too little, that means your co-authors, your reviewers will come back saying, come on, <laughs> you did not do your homework, right? <laughs> Go back and redo it. So that will just drag along. It's, it's a waste of time, I think. It's a waste of time, just um, really not necessary. So I think that's, that's a mistake that we see um, the other, the other one is um, not not humble, not patient. Uh, when I say that, you know, that, let's face it, um, our colleagues are very intelligent people, um, and we have that curiosity, and we want to create knowledge, and we're proud of what we do. And when we have our research projects, there's a reason we have some kind of drive that we would want to explore, we would want to know, and we want to share that with the rest of the, of the world. Uh, so we're proud of that. And we, we do not like being criticized. Um, you know, that's, that's our kids. I, I, <laughs> it's just, I'm a mom, I use that ana analogy a lot. We do not want people to criticize, but our profession, you know, for knowledge creation, for our own benefit, for us to be able to produce the best work we could produce, we have to be open. We have to be humble. We have to be able to um, be willing to listen, be willing to accept 
criticisms. I think that's very, very important. There was one time uh, <laughs> a student even uh, talked to me saying, I have revised this so many times. How many times do you, how many more times do you want me to revise it? <laughs> well, you know, we just have to be patient. I'm not saying sitting on something, you know, forever and looking for that perfect thing, right? You know, but, you know, for, I think for a junior, for doctor students, for a junior scholar, uh, that balance, you know, we're still looking for that balance. So that's one, it's helpful to be humble, to listen to uh, advices, to, to ask for support, uh, to share the work with people and not being, not being uh, you know, too afraid of receiving criticisms. You know, just like that printing story I shared with you, I was afraid of sharing that um, and I killed it. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not worthwhile. <laughs> it's not worthwhile at all. Perfect. Um, then uh, what's the question I should have asked you, but haven't? Um, I, I think you covered a lot of grounds and, and I enjoyed talking with you and I enjoyed watching the, the conversations that you did with other scholars. Um, no, I, I think you cover everything great. And I, I want to thank you for doing this. Um, it's really wonderful to have this opportunity and for, for, our, for our field, actually. Thank you so much for your time, uh, for this interesting interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.